Okay, while we're getting settled here, I have some books I want to recommend to you based on uh, the teaching time today. So let's uh, bring that up. Uh, first one, and then I'm just holding these because I, I, I just want you to see these are small and they're accessible. They're not thick. They're not 800 pages. So Evangelism by Mark Stiles, who's a former missionary, still probably considers himself to be a missionary, but he's stateside now. He's excellent, real simple, straightforward, clear explanation of what evangelism is. Uh, the next one is Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice, who's a pastor in England. Kind of a funny guy, and it's an interesting, fun book to read. Tells a lot of his story of uh, not being uh, the sharpest tool in the shed when he was young, and yet he just stepped into evangelism, and things worked out for him really well. And then Mere Evangelism is one of my favorites. This is, uh, the title is A Takeoff of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So this guy did a study of C.S. Lewis's work, and he came up with mere evangelism. He tells us how C.S. Lewis evangelized people. And I've mentioned to you before, I started reading mere Christianity when I was not a Christian. By the time I finished, I was a Christian. I didn't realize what was being done to me, that he was presenting a case for Christianity, showing us that it's credible, and it's a very reasonable thing to believe in God, and it really helped me out a lot. So mere, Christi mere evangelism would be excellent. All these are very easy to read, I think. They're not, uh, you could, you could, yeah, you can get there. So before you share your faith is this little green book. It's a companion to, some of you have this, the yellow one that says before you open your Bible. Before you share your faith is also great. And I see a little uh, endorsement here on the, on the cover from Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller. Uh, read this book, it could change your life. Now, I just happen to have five extra copies that will be free to you if you are committed to reading this. Don't take a book and put it on, on the shelf. But uh, I'll probably be in the back and get cornered by people. They'll be up here in my seat in the front row where nobody else sits. Well, although now we have the Heemstras in the front row. So it's kind of sort of over by the Heemstras. There'll be five copies of Before You Share Your Faith. Uh, good stuff to know before you share your faith. <laughs> uh, now, I made it through life without having read this book. <laughs> I've read it recently, but I, I shared a lot of gospel conversations with people without having read that. Probably would have been better off if I'd read it. Hey, let's find, if you could, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be heading there, mostly 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. But would love for you to find in Scripture, if you have... Uh, Old-fashioned Bible, like I do, or if a device, get to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I feel a need to pray as we approach the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God this morning. Lord, help me to handle this correctly. This is your sword, our tool. I pray that you'd show us how we can learn more about you so that we can tell other people about you from your Word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my first attempt at sharing the gospel was a Billy Graham crusade. If you've never heard of either, Billy Graham was an evangelist, and he had an amazing way of explaining the gospel and was completely gospel-centered. A crusade was something where Christians would invite their friends and family and, and fill, usually it was a stadium, and it could be inside or outside, but uh, 
Mine was the Tacoma Dome, the year it opened. So I was, uh, I'd graduated from Seattle Pacific University, stayed in the area, did some work, started a career here, and, and the T Tacoma Dome opened, and, and all the churches in that area, I was living in Kent, a lot of the churches got involved in that, and it, it fascinating program. So I signed on to be a counselor with the Billy Graham Crusade and went through their training, which was great. And what would happen at the end of a, a, a night where they'd have various speakers and some music and then Billy Graham would preach and people would come forward. This was an old-fashioned altar call. If you want to give your life to Christ, come forward. People did. And then a lot of the counselors would go forward as well. So Billy would do his thing and he'd preach and it was very moving and then he would talk to the people who had gathered around down below and he'd step aside and he'd talk to the camera and to the folks at home and then the, the, pre the, the entire program would end and he'd have a few more comments to those who had gathered below and he'd say, now somebody's standing near to you who's going to explain to you the gospel and, and help you get started in your new life in Christ and some guy I'd never met before, I was standing next to him, and he looks at me, and <laughs> I managed to say hi before I blacked out and <laughs> forgot everything that they had trained me to do, had no idea what I was doing other than I had a track, and I kind of stumbled through a presentation. And I was, I was the reason I was uh, terrified of this situation, well, probably multiple reasons, but here, here is one. I felt as if it, Heaven and hell weighed in the balance in that moment. That all of eternity now came brought to bear in that presentation that I would give to that man. I was nervous for me. I was deathly afraid for him. Like, oh boy, there's only two choices. I, I'd only been a Christian two years. And I understood you were either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And I was, I was terrified that I would blow this. That I'd mess it up so bad He'd never, ever want to consider Christianity again. Uh, well, we both survived that moment, and I, I have lost track of him. I don't know how his, uh, his, his life ended. But also, I've since come to uh, realize that I was putting unwarranted pressure on myself. The Billy Graham crusade did nothing to lead me to that conclusion that somehow it all depended upon me in order to get that man into heaven. I did that to me. I made myself nervous. I put the whole thing on my shoulders, and that is wrong. Evangelism is a term that we use uh, to describe the act of telling other people about Jesus Christ. It's the, it can be formal proclamation, such as what Billy Graham used to do in a crowd of people. It could be a one-on-one -on -one conversation. It could be at a coffee shop. It could be in a home it could be very, very uh, almost anywhere. Uh, we get it from the, the Greek word euangelion, evangelization. I don't know if you can hear that connection, euangelion. It's, it's just simply the task of telling people about Jesus or making Jesus known or, or speaking of the good news of the gospel. Now, interesting, here's a Bible verse when Jesus first starts off, and yes, we are getting to 2 Corinthians, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 4. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Uh, or excuse me, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. So the good news there, that's, that's one word, that's the word euangelion. 
And I, I looked at six mo- good, really good modern translations. Three of them said good news. Three of them said gospel. So sometimes we bring this across and we use it interchangeably. Good news and gospel, just quite frankly, the way I'm using it today, evangelization or evangelism is the task of making Jesus known. Now, with regard to the task of evangelism, the the Bible is clear. God does his part, and people do their part. And that's primarily what I want to talk to you about today. God does his part. God has a role in evangelism. It doesn't all depend upon you. But at the same time, you can't act as if it's automatically going to happen because you have a responsibility as well. So here's a good definition of evangelism that I learned a very long time ago from Campus Crusade from Christ many, many years before they became crew. This is from uh, Crusade, as I used to call them. Evangelism is sharing Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Pressure's off. Evangelism is not defined by success or how many people you lead to Christ. That would actually be reaping. Evangelism is sharing the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power, Jesus said, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So evangelism is sharing Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. I wish I'd known that 40. I don't know, 45 years ago, when I was sharing with that guy at the Tacoma Dome, I would have been a whole lot less nervous, and he would have been better off. Oh, I want to talk to you today about the Great Commission Made Personal. This is the end of Missions Month, and we've been talking a lot about missions and missionaries, and, and uh, we tend to think of missions and missionaries as something that goes and, and has to deal with a far place from here. Missionaries go far away, and missions is somewhere else, and it's never around us. A very small piece of the Great Commission is evangelism. It's not the whole of of, uh, Great Commission, but it is a piece of the Great Commission. It's a very important piece, evangelism. And it can happen in the good old U.S. of A. It can happen in a coffee shop. It can happen in your home. My aim this morning is to show you from the Bible what your responsibility is in making the gospel known and the responsibility that God has promised to take in making the gospel known. Let's start out (coughs) in our understanding of this, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, first six verses. Let's read that. Since we, uh, therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, and we're going to find out it's the ministry of making Jesus known. We do not lose heart, rather. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, and that would be our defeated enemy, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the ministry that Paul is referring to is the ministry of making Jesus known. And I know we tend to think of that as formal ministry, vocational ministry. He's a paid church planter, paid uh, uh, apologist, paid pastor, etc. Really, he's not specifically referring to church planting or missions work or being a missionary or an apologist for Christianity or writing New Testament letters. Paul isn't referring to that at all. Paul is talking about something that Christians do today. We share this in common with the Apostle Paul. Or we should. We tell people about Jesus Christ. Paul took the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus, throughout Asia Minor. And he shook the world with a very simple message. Now Asia Minor uh, includes countries of where Paul had been. Italy, Greece, Albania, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Israel, and Lebanon. Paul was all over the map in that area of the world, and everything changed. Well, Paul tells us again that this ministry of making Jesus known has very clear responsibilities. God does his part. We also do our part. And Paul had some things that he did not do. Perhaps you caught that as we read. And he had something that he did do. Let's take a look at this. First of all, Paul did not deceive. You notice, uh, let's see, verse 2. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. And you might have a Bible translation that uses the word cunning instead of deception. Cunning. And that is a good word because Paul uses it later on in the same letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He refers to Satan as cunning. Our defeated enemy, the devil, is cunning. Paul doesn't do that. In other words, he's not trying to deceive. He's not trying to fool anybody. A second thing I see that Paul doesn't do is, is uh, distort. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. And you might have a translation that says tamper. Paul did not distort or tamper or change the gospel to take away its offense. Paul said hard things to people. I take it that he was willing to say hard things because he kept on saying them. And he kept on getting in, in trouble and persecuted. Sometimes Paul spoke hard things knowing he would offend people. Not personally, but by the message that he brought to them. So one thing that Paul did do, in keeping with the letter D, he declared. So I got to deceive and distort where he did not do those things. And the third thing he did was declare. And I see this little phrase in uh, verse 3 still. Setting forth the truth plainly. And you might have uh, a Bible translation that brings it across as by the open statement of truth. Declare. So if Paul was deceitful, he would have presented the gospel as something that it was not. If Paul was distorting, he would have changed the gospel or softened the gospel in somehow, some way. But in contrast to that, Paul simply presents the gospel. No additions, no subtractions. He just tells it like it is. Here it is. This is the truth. This is the gospel. 
This is why I sometimes say the gospel doesn't need to be dressed up or watered down. It just needs to be told. We get that as a, uh, an example in Scripture. So when I, when I give you that a phrase like that, I'm not trying to be clever or fancy. I'm just saying let's tell it like it is because people who have gone before us told it like it is, and it worked. This is also why the Bible gives us this charge. Preach the gospel. Be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, preach the gospel. That's the great hope for the world. Preach the gospel. Paul's job is to present the gospel, and God's job is to do a work on those who hear the gospel. Let's take a look at that. Verse, uh, I think I'm looking at uh, verse 6 here. This is what God has, will, will, will do. For God has said, uh, let light shine out of darkness. Now, I've got a little letter here that, that footnotes to, down to the bottom of the page, and I see that letter relates to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. So I know that's the moment of creation. That, that's when, when uh, God is, is building the created order, and, and he formed initially something that was just in total darkness. There's, it's just complete black. There is a complete and total absence of light. And God said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, God's vocal decree overpowered the darkness. And what we have here, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what God has promised to do, and we looked at this earlier in the Gospel of John, how we are walking in darkness, and Jesus said, I am the light of the world. God enlightens the hearts and minds of individuals so that they might understand him and, and, and be drawn to the Gospel. So the same creative power that is released during that, the, that era of creation, when God is forming and fashioning the world and he's overpowering darkness with light, that same creative light energy is used every single time a person comes to know Jesus Christ. That's not something that you have anything to do with, nor can you match that, nor can you replicate that. You have your part to do, and God has his part to do. Let's read again in verse 3. We'll, we'll, we'll get a look. at. So in, in saying this in, in verse 6, that God enlightens our hearts and our minds, Paul is giving us the solution. I want to draw your attention back to the problem. And we already read through this passage, but verse 3 gives us, a, again, the, the, the problem that must be overcome for people to, to come to Christ. Verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled. Okay, so that, that, that's good news. It doesn't mean it's always every single time veiled, but it sure is veiled a lot. Let's find out when is this gospel veiled. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those who are outside of Christ, those who know Jesus Christ, have, the, have God's light empowering them to understand and to see the gospel. Well, how does this happen that it's veiled? Verse 4, the God of this age, and that's a reference to our defeated enemy, the devil. 
The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is telling us here that um, he has his part to do. He cannot deceive. He cannot distort. He must declare. And God has his part to do. When there is declaration of the gospel, God lightens the mind and the heart. In other words, enabling a person. God enables. He empowers a person to be able to believe, to see, to understand, to think, and to reason biblically, and to so receive the gospel. Paul has a part to do, and God has a part to do. In fact, I can put it this way to make it simple. Your job is to make Jesus known. God's job is to open blind eyes. Let's see if we have that. What's your job? What's God's job? That's great. Now let's say it again and, and don't mumble. It just sounds like we're mumbling up here. I'm not getting a whole lot. I think I know what you said because I told you to say some things. Say it with conviction. What's your job? What's God's job? Make Jesus known and open blind eyes. Okay, so we receive even more clarity when we jump down to the next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we begin to uh, further understand this process and what it is that God has called us to do, what this ministry is all about. Verse 17 of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Hallelujah, that is good news. Wow. Brand new life. God gives to us a new life. We are not just a little bit changed people. We are totally brand new people. Where life did not exist before, God has created new life in Christ. Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And I'm going to suggest that's the ministry that Paul is talking about when he started chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, what's the ministry that Paul has? The ministry of reconciliation. Well, what does that look like? Verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of of reconciliation. If you have an ESV, I'm reading from the NIV, if you have an ESV, it comes across as God has entrusted to us. Literally, the word is deposit. <clears throat> now, I'm going I'm to shock some of you who are of the younger generation, but there was a day in our country, there was a day when we actually took money and checks to a bank. <laughs> I mean, now you just use your phone and a little click-click and, and you're good to go and you throw that uh, deposit a check away. But we, we took our checks and we took our cash and we took it to the bank. We actually walked in to the bank and we deposited. It's called making a deposit. We deposited our money with the bank and then we left. 
We entrusted it to the bank. We never saw it again. Well, hopefully on a statement or something. But we, we, we left it with them. We trusted them to hold our cash and to hold our checks and to do the right thing with it. That's this word. God has committed. He has entrusted. He has deposited the ministry and the message of reconciliation. And he's left it in the hands of people. This helps to answer the question that sometimes people ask, well, why doesn't God just bring people to himself? Why doesn't he just make people believe in Jesus? Why can't they just wake up one day and kind of, sort of, be Christian? Because that's not how God has set it up. The way God has set it up is his plan is to deposit or entrust, to commit the message and the ministry of reconciliation into the hands of people. God's plan, not mine. I'd probably be more content with the dream. You know, you, you wake up and you're a Christian somehow. No. God left that ministry in charge with people. In light of all of this, the new life in Christ, the ministry of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation. Watch what Paul says about those who are with him. He says this about himself, but also those who are with him. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, an ambassador is somebody who lives in a foreign country as an authorized representative of the messenger, the person who has sent him. Paul lives on earth, but he recognizes he has been sent as a representative of God with a message from God's heart. That message is quite simple. Be reconciled to God. The war can end. You can be in, in good standing with God. You can be friends with God. He has made the first move. And this message is so urgent to Paul that he implores, he pleads, he urges people to be right with God. Love this next verse, verse 21. If you're new to Bible memory, this would be a great place to start. And if it's been a long time since you memorized scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 ought to be your next memorized verse. It is outstanding. So here we are. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Love that. If you memorize this verse, even albeit imperfectly, uh, it will help you in your moments of personal evangelism. Gives you a very clear idea of what the gospel is about. It's so great, I want to talk you through it right now. Oh, yeah. So here we are, here's the Bible verse, and I'm, gonna, um, I'm not going to change words, I'm just going to build, uh, I'm going to stack it so you can see it a little bit early, early, easier. So one phrase at a time, God made him. That's really clear, but it's also specific, which means it's unique. Some people would say it's exclusive, narrow. We're going to find out that the, the offer is very broad, but it comes through one person. God, in his word here, doesn't say, God made them. It starts off by saying, God made him. So we know it to be Jesus. So that, that's all about Jesus. 
So uh, as we work our way through this and come to understand, this is, a, this is the gospel in miniature, this, this Bible verse. It's, it's about Jesus. There, there is no other way to this. To, to come, you can't come to the same result through a different path. It's got to be through the person of Jesus Christ. God made him, and that would be Jesus. Well, what did God make of him? God made him who had no sin. Wow, that's important. So it's not enough that Jesus Christ was born. Christmas doesn't save people. I love Christmas. Can't wait for Christmas. My wife and I were out driving, and, and we got out somewhere, and it was cold. We got outside, and cold, and nice sunny day, and I, boy, I just can't wait for Christmas. I love Christmas. It is by far my favorite time of year. I'm not dissing on Christmas, but Christmas can't save people. Jesus had to live a perfect life. Jesus had to be in a position where before God, he had absolutely no moral debt that he had to pay in and of himself. So God made Jesus, who had no sin, that is so important to understand. God made him, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Now, that would have never happened if Jesus had not lived a perfect life. So God, in his kindness, in his grace, and in his mercy, was willing to put your sin onto the person of Jesus Christ. That's the word impute, which unfortunately sounds like a, a nothing more than a theological term. There are three great imputations in Scripture. Adam's sin was imputed to you. That might sound, not sound, that might sound to you like that's not fair. <laughs> I wasn't in the garden. Come on. Adam's sin was imputed to you because he was re your representative. Your, Adam's sin was transferred to your account, and you ratify his decision every time you rebel or sin against God. But there's a second imputation. Your sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. It was transferred to his account. You probably didn't know that when you became a Christian. weren't aware of that. It, you might have come across that later. God made him, God made Jesus who had no sin, to be sin for us, all of us who are Christian. God looks to Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus lived, said, thought, Everything that you ever lived, said, thought. So all the weakness, all the rebellion, all the best efforts can come up short, all of that goes to Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, again, there's the pathway, it is very specific in Christ, not through some other means, not through Buddha, not through Muhammad, not through Confucius, not through your intelligence or your works, not through your family, not through your pastor. Holy moly, not through your pastor. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the third great imputation of Scripture. Just as your sin is transferred to the account of Jesus Christ, his righteousness 
is transferred to your account. Once again, you probably didn't know that, but at the mo when you got saved, in other words, when you became a Christian, but at the moment of salvation, everything that God could possibly hold against you went to Jesus Christ on the cross, where he paid for that. And the entirety of the life of Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness, nailed it. Hit the holy standard every single time. It's as if Jesus were living your life and he lived with perfection. Everything you said, everything you did, everything you thought was perfect because Christ was in you living those things. It's as if that happened so that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In him, there's no other way. But there is a way that's free, it's full, it's complete, and you can be right with God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so I have a challenge for you with regard to all of this. And quite frankly, um, this is going to sting a little bit. I'm not even sure that I want to hear what I have to say because I'm not perfect at this. If you're interested in embracing the Great Commission on a worldwide basis, you will first need to embrace the Great Commission on a personal level. When we send people to the mission field, we don't send people who are nominal Christians and hope that they somehow experience a change when they get there. Get off the plane, brand new person. No, we don't do that. One of the reasons why I think we are uncomfortable sharing Christ in the good old U.S. of A. with uh, folks who are unchurched is that we're not enough in the habit of sharing Christ with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We just don't talk about the gospel enough. We don't talk about God, the Bible, spiritual things, how you doing, how you growing in Christ. What are you praying about these days? Any scriptures you've memorized recently? We just don't spend enough time talking about Christian things with those who are Christians so that it would build our comfort level of simply talking about spiritual things with whoever God sends into our, our, our lives. Okay, now I'm going to double down on this, actually, and make this just a bit harder, and this is where it might sting. In your conversations with Christians, see if you can do these things. Be more comfortable talking about Jesus than politics. I know some of you are passionate about politics. Great. Don't have a problem with that. Could you be more passionate about talking with, to other people about Jesus than you? Let your, let your passion for politics only be exceeded by Jesus. Could you do that? Be more comfortable talking about Jesus than the Seahawks or the Mariners. Oh boy, I like sports. Love to talk about teams. I should be more eager, more interested, more willing to engage people talking about Jesus than Seahawks or Mariners. Be more comfortable talking about Jesus than a specific diet or exercise program. We find something that works, boy, we can get passionate about it. We can become an evangelist for the latest diet or exercise program. Be more passionate talking about Jesus. 
with your Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Talk to them about Jesus. Be more comfortable talking about Jesus than your health issues. You know what? I turn 65 next month, and I'm going to enter this cadre of people who love to talk about what's wrong with them and the latest med. Wow. Looking forward to it. <laughs> sure, I can tell you what doesn't work over here. Yeah, I can keep up with that, but I'd rather talk about Jesus. Okay. Be more comfortable talking about Jesus than you talk about yourself and your job, your kids, your grandkids, all things related to you. Be more comfortable talking about Jesus. If you can, that's the bar. I, I'm not saying I, I'm there. I'm not saying that anyone is necessarily going to get there. But aim for that. Be more comfortable. Be quicker to talk about Jesus than you do so often the things that deal with you. I, <laughs> I found out, I, I wasn't planning on sharing this. Sure, I'll go ahead. You talk me into it. I'll go, okay, I'll, I'll share this. So I, I found out about this again. Uh, recently, my wife battled shingles for quite some period of time, and, and honestly, the battle goes on. But in any case, early on, people would ask me, hey, how's Julie? Well, you know, she does have shingles. Oh, shingles! And then they'd go off into their story. And Uncle Fred, who lives in Iowa, had a friend who had a cousin who had, knew somebody who had shingles. Yeah, that's really interesting. But weren't we talking about my wife here? <laughs> you know, I never said that. I, I, I appreciate your stories, love them, mean it. Um, but it was interesting to me how quickly we divert and we go to other things. Talk about Jesus more than you talk about Julie. Talk about Jesus more than you talk about shingles. Talk about Jesus more than anything else. Let's get comfortable talking to our brothers and sisters in Christ about Jesus. That will make you more comfortable talking about Jesus to people that you think, man, maybe they don't know this. Well, at least you're comfortable having the conversation. So you can use your brothers and sisters in Christ sort of as practice evangelism. You want to practice evangelism? Best place in the world to practice evangelism, right here in this room with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Would you be willing to pray with me that God will send to you people who need to hear gospel conversations because they don't know Jesus yet? Would you pray that? Would you be willing to pray with me that God will send you two people, two people, who need to have gospel conversations because they don't know Jesus yet? Would you be willing to pray that? I pray that, and I see prayers, those prayers are answered. I pray that for our church, that God would send people here who don't know Jesus Christ. That's why sometimes we have, that's in part, why sometimes we have lost people among us. If you pray that way, you need to be prepared to have a gospel conversation. One of the ways you prepare is you talk to your brothers and your sisters in Christ about spiritual things. And then it's just much more easy, easier to have that conversation when it really matters. Okay, one last thought. Now track this through with me. The person or people who told you about Jesus, they were able to tell you about Jesus because someone else told them. And you can step back from that. The person who told them 
was able to tell the person who told you about Jesus because someone else told them. And you can keep on walking it back. The person who told them, told them, who told them, who told the person who told you about Jesus. You can go all the way back to the apostles on that one. Okay, now let me ask you this. If every Christian in the world adopted your strategy and your measure of praying and your time and effort that you invest in sharing the gospel with other people, would you be saved? Would you have ever heard of the gospel if everyone who's a Christian in the world adopted your practices in terms of making Jesus known? Would you have ever heard? Your job is to make Jesus known. God's job is to open blind eyes. Let's give God a chance to do that, shall we? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you put in your word instructions to us that are clear and compelling. And thank you for doing the hard part of evangelism. We come to understand that we cannot convert anybody. We cannot talk a single soul into receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But we can talk, and we can make Jesus known, and we want to be doing exactly that. Lord, give us the courage, and where there is fear, chase that out with faith. Give us the competence, and where we feel inadequate, chase that out by reminding us we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the words. And when we run out of ideas, use your word that you embed in our hearts to tell other people the truth that they need to hear from you. I pray that this would be a congregation that speaks for you and represents you to a world that, quite frankly, is dying without Jesus. We want that to change. Send us to people who need to have gospel conversations and send people our way who also need to hear gospel conversations. And we will be willing to speak, even if it's imperfect. Please use it. In Jesus' name, amen.